0: Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So we've been, we've been exploring these practices of bringing presence to our communication and relationships, bringing a clear intention, falling back on the intention to understand this curiosity and care, and then training our attention to focus on what matters, what actually happened, the observations, how are we feeling, how is the other person feeling, what emotions are present why what matters what's important here and then where do we go from here what's next how can we move forward together requests so this analogy that i gave at the beginning of learning to swim and taking it you know step by step going in shallow water uh obviously in life there are we're not always in shallow water (laughs) You know, sometimes we're in deep water, sometimes there are strong waves or currents, and things get challenging and difficult. So for our last segment this morning, I wanted to focus on uh, a few tools for practicing with more challenging situations. And to do that, um, I wanted first to discuss this very uh, rich text from the Buddha uh, called the Simile of the Saw. And... um, I want to just summarize it a little bit. Hopefully everyone had a chance to read it, but I want to, I want to go through it and point out a few things that stand out to me. Um, so, so the sutta opens with um, the Buddha hearing about one of his disciples who's been spending a lot of time hanging out with the nuns and has gotten quite close with them. In fact, he's gotten so close with them that whenever anyone says anything slightly disparaging about the nuns, he gets really angry. And so um, the Buddha hears this and he calls him and says, like, you know, I'd like to talk to you. And the first thing that I find wonderful about this sutta is did you notice what, what the Buddha says first to him? What's the first thing he says when he calls the monk into his presence? Hmm? Yeah, and is it true? Is it true? Right? So he doesn't assume that just because he heard it, it's accurate, and he wants to hear it from the monk himself. So how many times in life does someone tell us something about a third party? And then do we come to the other person and say, hey, I heard such and such, what's going on? Is this, is this right? Is this accurate? So this, this deep commitment, not only to honesty, but also to having like clear, open communication with the people in our lives, and not getting enmeshed in that sense of, of, of uh, triangulation and entanglement, of I know this about them, but they don't know that about me, and all of that kind of stuff. So then the Buddha basically goes on to say, look, you know, this isn't helpful for you. It's not helpful for the nuns. You're, you're um, you know, when you, when you took on this commitment, you were committing to... Um, not getting, uh, not clinging to things, not getting really um, uh, overly attached to having things be a certain way. And so he advises the monk to train his mind to stay balanced. And he says, whatever anyone says about the nuns, train yourself to keep your mind balanced, to not utter evil words, what he says. So to not use wrong speech, harsh speech, divisive speech and to stay compassionate for that person's welfare with a mind of love without hate. And then he goes on to actually raise the stakes. He says, not only if someone says something negative about them or says, some, or says dispraise about them, but even if someone is physically violent towards them or towards you, to, um, to keep your mind free from hate, free from moving into hatred. And so, this is really the central teaching of this text as I understand it. It's about our speech and our relationships and training our minds to keep from moving into ill will and hatred, which doesn't preclude action. It doesn't preclude speaking up. It doesn't preclude protecting ourselves or others. It's about the internal state of mind in response to uh, challenging or harsh speech. So, so then we. Um, so then the Buddha tells this story. He says, "Let me tell you a story. There is this uh, this maid, and her uh, um, uh, the the woman that she worked for was known for being so peaceful and kind. And this maid was, you know, kind of uh, mischievous." Right, and so she says, well, "Let's see how kind she is. Let me test her a little bit. Is she actually really peaceful and kind, or is she just kind when everything's going her way?" So, as you see, she wakes up late. Then she wakes up even later. She stops doing her chores, and eventually, the the the, the mistress kind of snaps and hits her with a rolling pin. Right? Actually, is physically violent, and so the maid runs out into the street and says, "Look, look, look! How you know?" This, you know, this woman who has this wonderful reputation isn't so meek and peaceful, she's hit me and drawn blood. And so what's the point of this sutta? I mean, this story. So then the, the Buddha's pointing to the fact that, you know, it's easy to be peaceful and kind and loving when everything's going our way, but the true test of our, uh, the strength of our practice is what? Is when people don't speak to us Nicely. So then he goes on to outline. He says there, there are basically five ways that people could address you. He says people can speak to you at the right time or the wrong time. They can say things that are true or, or they can say things that are not true. They might say things in an affectionate and gentle way. They might speak to you harshly. People might say things that are helpful. Connected to some meaning or purpose. They might say things that are not helpful. And they might say things from a heart of goodwill or from a heart of ill will. And then again, he comes back to this initial teaching with the monk and says, however people address you, that pretty much covers the bases, right? All five of those. No matter what people say, train your minds to remain the word, the translation is unaffected, and I'll say, I'll say a little bit about that word in a moment, but keep your mind balanced. Don't lash out with evil words. Don't take the bait. And not only that, but actually cultivate a heart of goodwill and compassion. And then begin to actually uh, you know, offer that compassion and goodwill towards the other person, and then from there to all beings. And then again, he raises the stakes. He says, if bandits were to catch you and start sawing you limb from limb, pretty gruesome. He said, if your mind moved into hatred or ill will, even for a moment, you wouldn't be practicing this teaching. Okay? So people take that analogy often in teaching and say, that's what metta is. If someone's, you know physically abusing you to not have ill will, that's a pretty high bar. But the context is important. The context as the Buddha says, if that's the bar, and someone's speaking to you harshly, don't you think you could not move into hatred? It's not like they're sawing your limbs apart. So he's using this as an analogy to point out, look, if you're really practicing, if someone were actually dismembering you, my teaching is to not feel hatred towards that person, to actually still stay connected to their humanity, to be able to see that this person's mind is filled with confusion, filled with ignorance and hatred, and you know they're creating a lot of awful karma for themselves doing this. So if that's the bar and someone yells at you, <laughs> don't you think we could try to not feel hatred towards the person? So he's trying to put things in perspective there. So how? How to do this? Um, So I want to say one thing about this word that occurs in the translation again and again. Our minds will remain unaffected. That's an interesting phrase, right? Because what does it mean to be unaffected? Does that mean we don't feel anything? So first of all, the word mind is chitta, which is heart mind. So it's not just thinking. It's the, the affective sense as well. And the word that's translated as unaffective is parinatang, which means um, literally not changed. But the root of the word means um, to be bent or crooked or twisted. Sometimes it's translated as perverted. So there's this sense of getting turned around or bent out of shape, twisted. So my understanding of this of this teaching in this word viparinatang is it's not that we don't feel anything but it's that we don't get bent out of shape we don't lose our balance the mind doesn't get twisted and turned around by what someone says to us we're able to stay grounded and so how how do we do this so this is, for me, one of the most interesting parts of the sutta, where the Buddha gives these four vivid analogies for how to train our mind in difficult situations, in difficult communication situations, to not get all bent out of shape, to stay balanced. When someone is speaking to us, saying things at the wrong time, that are false, that are harsh, that are not helpful, that maybe are coming from a place of ill will towards us, so, the first, um, the first analogy the Buddha uses is, he says to train yourself to make your mind like the earth. He says, if someone were to come to the earth with a shovel and try to remove all of the soil, all of the earth, from the planet, would that be possible? What would the result be? And the monks say, that's not possible. The person would just end up being really exhausted and frustrated. And the Buddha says, that's right. Why? And they say, well, the earth is huge. It's immense. It's vast and deep. There's no way to take all of the earth out of earth. The Buddha says, exactly. So that's how you should train yourself. Make your mind like the earth, deep and vast and immeasurable, so that whatever anyone says, it's It's like the other analogy that's used in the suttas. It's like a teaspoon of salt in the ocean or in a lake. It doesn't have any effect. The next analogy he gives is he said, if someone were to come with buckets of paint and start throwing them into the air, trying to paint the space, to try to paint pictures on the space, would they be able to? (laughs) No. Why not? Well... Space is formless. It's empty. There's nothing there. It's not manifest. You can't paint space. And so the Buddha says in the same way, train your mind to be like empty space, formless, non-manifest. And I love this image when you think about someone speaking to us in a way that's harsh or difficult to hear, to make our mind spacious and open. And it just passes through. There's no place for the words to land. It doesn't stick the way paint sticks to a canvas. And then the next image, he says, if someone were to come with a grass torch to try to burn the Ganges River, so here we might think of the Hudson River. If someone came and tried to burn up the river, what's going to happen? The torch is just going to go out. Because the river is deep and immense. Water has the nature of being cool, and moist fire can't exist in water and again in the same way train your mind to be like a like a river like water deep immense cool not flammable what would it be like for the mind to be cool and peaceful and deep to not be able to be ignited by someone else's words and then the last analogy, um, which is no longer relevant for us today, this was um, read some of the commentaries from Bhikkhu. Uh So apparently, um, a catskin bag was a uh, literally a, a bag made of catskin that was a, a, a used at the time of the Buddha, and the. The interpretation is that the value of a catskin bag was determined; its usefulness and its value was determined by how smooth and flexible it was. So, like, if you went to a marketplace to buy one, one of the tests would be taking a, a shard of pottery and rubbing it on the on the leather on the skin to see if it would crackle. And if it would crackle, then you would, you would guess, okay, this it hasn't been dried properly; it's brittle, so it's not actually it's going to break. It's not going to serve its purpose but if it's smooth and soft and flexible this is a good bag you know it's gonna hold up so the analogy of making the mind like this this piece of uh, fabric this pe- or skin that's flexible and smooth gentle pliable so what I love about this is that the Buddha's pointing to the power of perception this, this aspect of our mind to use metaphor and image, imagination, to connect with certain qualities and then to cultivate those qualities. So we'll, we'll discuss this in a moment, but after that, we're going to lead a guided meditation where we experiment with each of these. And for the fourth one, since... None of us probably own or have ever seen or held a cat skin bag. For the fourth one, I'll invite you to come up with your own image. Something that speaks to your heart, something that's meaningful for you, that, um, that helps you to connect with these whatever qualities would be useful in the face of difficult speech. So for me, one of the ones that I use, for example, uh, is a tree, a redwood tree. Huge massive, steady, strong. Another image I've used is uh, there's a place in Oregon, um, actually in Washington state, just north of Portland where there's a a hermitage uh, called the Pacific Hermitage. And there's a viewpoint from there above the Columbia River Gorge where you can see the whole gorge and the river, um, the Columbia River, and then in the distance is Mount Hood and the sky. So there's the openness of the sky, there's the vastness of the earth and the mountains and the coolness of the water. And that image, having that image in my mind, helps me to connect with the sense of spaciousness, um, the the larger scale of time beyond my own small life. And so that helps me if someone's, you know, saying something that bugs me, it's just to recollect that sense of the, the large picture and the sense of spaciousness. So for the fourth, wall, fourth one, I'll invite you to come up with some image, real or imagined, that helps you connect with certain qualities. And maybe the last thing I'll say is, I don't know if you recognize the similarity between the words in the sutta and the chant we've been doing in the morning, I will abide pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving-kindness. So this is also, uh, we cultivate this quality through practice, through chanting and through loving kindness practice and the other Brahma Viharas. So any questions about this um, before we we shift gears to a guided meditation? Let's pass the mic over first to uh, Adam.
1: This is, I guess, more of a semantic question about the text, which you've essentially already answered, but, you know, the text doesn't say, he he says to um, his friend, you know, it might be helpful to, you know, try thinking like this, he says you should mm mm-hmm. right and I'm wondering you know how you explain right, right the connotation behind should yeah,
0: yeah. thank you that's a great uh, it's a great question and it piques my interest I haven't actually looked at the poly um for that for what's being translated as should the the i think it's it's not the it's not a word should it's a it's a certain verb tense i think um uh like and the, the general understand, my general understanding, because that shows up a lot in the translations, like the, even the most common translation of the metta sutta begins, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Um, my general understanding of, of that construction is if, if one is interested in freedom from suffering then these are, the, these are the appropriate actions to arrive at that goal. So the should is not a moral should, and you're bad if you don't, and I'm gonna blame you. It's more like, hey, you came to me as a student and said you were interested in this path. This is how to practice. This is what I'm teaching. That's, that's the way I hold it. But thank you, I'll, I'll, I'm curious now, and I'll go back and look at the Pali and see a little bit more about it. Uh, Laura and then Brenda
1: just a thought that that should could be understood as the same kind of should that we use in English um, as a conditional. So, should this happen, then that. Mm-hmm, right. So, my thought was it's should in the sense that should you choose to do this wise thing, then the result will be... Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious about the word admonish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because he uses it at one point. And, yes. and it, admonish to me sounds like reprimand. Right. It sounds like reproach.
0: Yes. So, um, so the word admonish is a very important word in the training for monks. And um, it does carry that connotation of reproach. Uh, but in the context of monastic training... The word "admonish" is um, is understood as um, uh, giving feedback to learn, and there there are uh, certain texts actually um, in the in the handout on uh, textual resources. The uh, I think I included. Basically, they're, they're guidelines for how to offer feedback skillfully, and this is the way it's translated in the text is admonishment. Um, and the, the understanding is that it's... Um, so, I'll, I'll actually I'll read the passage, passage, monks, a monk who wishes to admonish another give feedback to another, teach another, train another, this is the understanding, should do so after investigating five conditions in oneself and after investigating five other conditions in oneself. What are the five conditions which one should investigate? So the ba- Buddha is basically saying, look, if you want to tell someone something about what they're doing and say, hmm, you probably want to look at this and maybe do it differently. If you want to give someone feedback quote admonish them right here's how to do that so listen to what he says he says first am i pure in my action of body flawless am i pure in my speech flawless untainted so actually before you so just check like you know those who live in in glass houses right so just saying like okay have i ever done that you know, is, is my speech, are my actions totally righteous and always connected to good? And then he says, do I have a heart of goodwill, free of malice, established in me towards other people on this path? Have I listened, understood the teachings and remembered them? Have I practiced the teachings and really understood them deeply with insight? And then have I, have I learned and understood the training guidelines? The Patimoka, which is the monk's rules, and really, um, am I following them clearly? So, so here, so we're getting a sense. The Buddha is saying, okay, you know, before you give someone feedback, just really check yourself, and be humble, be honest about your own flaws, and make sure that your heart is 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 has a, a, a connected to goodwill rather than malice. So, when we think about admonishing you, as we think about that that malice or that you're doing it wrong and you shouldn't, not not at all the meaning. And then he goes on to say, and then before you speak, make sure you're following um, the, the, the five guidelines that you're speaking at the right time, that you're speaking truthfully, gently, um, in, in a helpful and kind way. So that's what admonishment means in this context. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Is it's related to, to this? Yeah, so let's get Jack and then come
1: over there. So you said, uh, um, or what I heard you say, <laughs> um, one needs to uh, not necessarily jump out in the stormy ocean. But I had a lot coming up for me while you were talking about this because I think, uh, it, for me, I need to restate for myself and I found my mind just going over it again and again, the power in uh, extricating oneself or um, from situations where people aren't open to this at all Mm -hmm. or situations where people are being downright abusive Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. and
1: one should not uh, get confused um, as I have thinking like, oh, I'm going to be like water and just stay in this situation while this person's screaming at me. Right, yeah. And kind of get numb during the headlights Yeah, yeah. instead of just like yeah. putting yeah. up a hand. So, you know, that's a lot yeah. of what's come up for me in that.
0: Yeah, thank, thank you. It's a very important point. And um, having goodwill means we have goodwill and compassion towards ourselves. And so if there's a situation that's harmful, that's not helpful, then out of goodwill and compassion for ourselves, we might remove ourselves from that situation. And the teaching, so the teaching here, this is very important, the teaching here isn't about our actions, it's about our state of mind. It's, there's no prescribed course of action. It's not saying stay in the situation, take the abuse. The situation is saying don't let your mind move into ill will and hostility because that's harmful to yourself. And it's not gonna help the situation. So even if it's an abusive situation where, you know, we, we, our needs for safety and respect and care and empathy um, are not being met, and we, and we say, you know, I think, I, I think I'm gonna leave, or I'm, I'm, I'm not able to be in touch with you anymore, can we do that still from a place of being connected to goodwill and compassion for ourselves primarily and for others? And, wh- and the other thing that's important here is, you know, yeah, we get angry right? We get pissed. We experience ill will. When that happens, how do we respond? Do we feed it? Or do we recognize it with awareness and choose to practice with it and say, oh wow, the mind is, is affected by ill will. This is dangerous. It's like there's a snake, a poisonous snake in my house. That's one of the analogies. I need to be careful here. There's something that could harm me present in my own mind. And it's not about suppressing the anger, it's about bringing awareness to it, learning how to to process and digest it, and learning to connect with our own needs. What's important to me? If I'm angry, there's something going on that's really not working. Let me find out what that is. And often by understanding that more deeply, some of the anger starts to transform. Phyllis and then Kirsten...
2: Um, This relates to what was just said. It might be a little different, um, Mm -hmm. but I'm reminded of uh, people who work for social justice and are capable of witnessing incredibly horrible things but have a resource, uh, whatever that is. Often um, it could be uh, experiences of beauty, but whatever whatever their practice is. And I wonder about when I see that, it's beautiful, um, but I think about um, fear, and then I think about... Uh, I think Pema Chodron talks about touch and go, sort of going in and going out mm-hmm. of it. Um, and now yes. I'm kind of confused, but also at how we're instructed to not run away from it, but sometimes I could look at that and say, oh, I can hold those beautiful pictures and not be present.
0: Right. Right. So I don't know if I'm articulating. Some of that will be addressed, I think, in the guided meditation. It's not about checking out. It's about, so the image, and this is part of the, the practice of reflection and recollection, which is a specific kind of meditation practice that we'll do in a few moments, is about using an image or a thought or an idea in the mind to generate a certain quality of experience in the heart and then to uh, dwell in that experience as a way of expanding our resources. So the experience that's happening is actually in the moment. It's been stimulated or triggered intentionally by a certain thought, image, idea. But we we use that image to connect with a certain quality in the heart.
2: So you're you're not covering, you're actually being present with.
0: Yes, and yes. And um, in the face of intensity, sometimes we do need to touch and go. We do need to step out of it and, and gather our strength. And that's not an escape or a denial, it's taking a break so that we can come back. Yeah, uh, Kirsten and then Effie and then maybe we can uh, pause the, the discussion
2: just going back to the sutta i'm yes. curious about the cat skin bag yes and the um doing no harm yes and whether historically that's something that's taken from an animal that you know has died naturally or w- whether i
0: that... have no idea mm-hmm. um the monks certainly would not have killed the animal um but uh you know ancient india um Uh, Cows were sacred and were not killed, but uh, I think other meat was eaten by different um, uh, segments of the population. The Brahmin caste was vegetarian, I believe. Uh, So, you know, monks had certain rules around vegetarianism. Uh, If someone offered meat, the monks were allowed to eat it if it was left over and hadn't been killed for them if someone if someone if they came and, and the and the family says we just slaughtered our you know chickens for you because we knew you were coming then the monks couldn't eat it because the karma of that would be specifically for them versus well you know here's some leftover food from the meal that we cooked for ourselves and they, they then that life was taken independently of the, of the monks yeah thank you you're welcome
1: Um, I'm wondering about how to deal with a sense of disillusionment or failure mm-hmm. when going out into the world and trying to practice this. Mm. Because I've really enjoyed my time here and mm. connecting with, mm. re- communicating and actually connecting. Yeah. And I'm just wondering yes. how I can cope <laughs> when yeah. that's not happening most of right. the time out there. Yeah.
0: Thank you. I'm so touched by your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm I'm hearing uh so much in it like the the sense of um the beauty and hope for what's possible and your deep commitment to bringing these qualities into your life um, and also like a really sober clear look at this is hard you know and uh wanting maybe wanting to be balanced about what's possible and have the resources to take care of yourself and manage when um our actions fall short of our expectations yeah yeah um so a few things a few things come to mind um First, the the acknowledgement that um, this is challenging stuff. It's challenging stuff. Um, I'll I'll tell you a little secret. Um, I say to my colleagues and my friends, I say, God, I hate teaching communication. It's so hard. <laughs> I'd so much rather just teach meditation. It's so easy compared to communication. Because you, when you're meditating, you're just dealing with your own mind. <laughs> you're communicating, you, you know, you've got, you've got all this junk going on, and then you've got someone else. Forget about a whole family or an organization or a group. Um, so the patternings and the energies that we deal with in communication run very deep. So um, the forces we're dealing with are strong, and the conditioning, we're carrying a lot of conditioning. So I think all of that to say, um, it's really normal and natural to uh, have a, 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 a very gradual learning curve with this. Um, you know, I, uh, I wrote a blog recently, uh, the three pit, most common pitfalls to nonviolent communication where I talk about um, a good friend from college who uh, who I lost trying to use nonviolent communication with because I didn't really understand it yet. And um, there was a lot of blame and manipulation behind the words I was using. And he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And the cost was so high in the relationship that we were never able to really reconnect, you know? So, um, so so you know, I'm just first just wanting to, to say that it's uh, it's completely normal and natural to uh, mess up and fall back into old habits um, and that's why it's a practice. And the, the beauty and the gift of contemplative practice of which I include this work is that our minds can learn and they can shift. So um so, we can, so if, we take, if we take our goal as learning, rather than getting it right, then we're gonna uh, um, enjoy the process more, and probably we'll find that the pace of learning increases. So, judgment of ourselves shuts down learning. If you think about you're trying to teach a child to learn math, and every time the child gets something wrong, you blame the child. Say, What's wrong with you? I explained that. Come on, get it right. How how well is that child gonna learn? How much are they even gonna want to learn math? You know? So but we do that to ourselves. Every time we don't live up to our expectations, we get out the whip. What kind of context is that? What kind of environment and atmosphere is that to learn? So if instead we take as our goal, not getting it right, but just learning, which means making mistakes, that's how we learn, then the process becomes one of, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at that, I totally snapped. I wonder what was going on there. Okay, let me, let me think about this, let me investigate. What happened? Where did I lose mindfulness? What was the hook? What was the thing that got me going? You know, I came in with this really good intention and then, oh, it was that thing that she said when she brought up, oh, that's interesting. I'm still hung up on that. I haven't let go of that. Okay, you know, maybe I need to talk to her about that because we never really resolved, you know? So it becomes a process. So every time we fall short of our expectations, that's good because we're recognizing, we're, we, have, we actually have awareness of what's possible. So to see those, uh, those instances, not as a failure, but actually as an opportunity to learn and as part of the process of learning. The more aware we are of uh, the, the areas that we wanna do things differently, uh, the more we're actually growing in the practice. And then we can use this form to investigate what happened What's the observation? What feelings are present? Okay, what's important to me? What am I needing here? What was I needing in this situation? And what am I needing in myself? Oh, wow, I'm really... I'm really wanting to live with integrity and I'm wanting to come from a place of kindness in my life. It's so important to me. And it's so painful when my actions and my words don't reflect that. And when we can really touch that place of our values and feel the um, the sadness and the mourning of when our actions are not in line with that, that's how the heart learns. So the Buddha, one of the uh, there's a, a sutta where um, somebody does something to the Buddha that's disrespectful. And, the, and, and the, the monk is apologizing and saying how awful he feels and how terrible he feels. And the Buddha says, no, 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 don't say that. He says, when you make a mistake, I call this progress on the path. To make a mistake and acknowledge it, make amends, and set an intention to do it differently in the future, that's progress. So very important teaching. And there are those three elements: that the, the the honest acknowledgement of the of the reality of the situation, the gap between our words or actions and our values or expectations, making amends. So, if it involves another person, you know, clean up the mess. Hey, I'm sorry. It wasn't wasn't where I was wanting to come from. I said some things that I wish I hadn't. Um... I hope you can forgive me. I hope you can understand. I'd like to do that over. And then setting an intention to do it differently and using our creativity, our energy, um, our mindfulness to find ways to learn from it and do it differently. So is is some of that helpful in thinking about going forward? Yes. Great. Great. Thank you. So um, so how are folks doing? Do we want to take a break here? Yeah? Okay, so it's five of. Let's take a ten-minute break and come back at five after ten. So we can stop the sound file.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.